0: Right. Are we, we're rolling, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, Sorry, we should probably do a little bit of a... Right, right. Because yeah, we'll we don't want to miss... The, we don't want to miss... The, I,
1: I, I am recording it all because I figure <laughs> I, I figured something like this would happen, but I think we, we do want to... Sure, I'll do, I'll, do a, I'll do an I intro. I
0: remember listening to the show with Annie. We, you guys started talking and then you jumped in and said, at some point, let's well, do an is, introduction. This or is pretty like. much how it is all
1: of it.
2: <laughs> Welcome to Poncom Podcast starring... There me.
1: Is. <laughs> Starring Mike Beltran with just with. Don't make yourself a star all of a sudden. It's oh. called Bankom. I don't know how this with works. Mike I when, when I was in Cleveland, just, I was like,
2: "How do you do an we're intro just with Nick?" You. Usually does these things. I'm not sure what I'm
1: doing. <laughs> All right, so you're listening to Pancom Podcast. It's a podcast sandwich <laughs> with Mike Beltran. I'm Nick Jimenez. We're joined off Mike over here by Carlos Carluber Rodriguez. hello to the people. Hello to the people. There he is. And we are with a very special guest. Very special guest. I will guest. not even bother attempting to introduce because yeah. Mike, who we're with, is yes. far more qualified to do that. Chef, Chef we Norman are very, Van Aken. We are very like,
2: I, I don't know. It's almost like it's incredible to have someone like yourself on this show. Cause when we talked about this, this is show, absurd. it's absurd. When we talked about this show, it was like, you know, we're just a bunch of, you know, and we're just going to talk shit. And it's like, and then it's like, well, Nick's like, let's get Norman on the show. I'm like, Norman's not going to want to be on this show. It's just us like, you know, and then you were like, sure. And I'm like, Fuck, Norman's going to be on the show now. Damn. (laughs) What do we do? Uh
0: Uh-oh. What do I do now?
2: (laughs) So thank you for uh, coming on, spending
1: some time with us.
2: Means the world to me, you know.
1: Now, bearing in mind that we have a tremendous fan base in Salina, Kansas. Salina, Kansas, yes.
2: Chef Norman Van Aken, who I call the author of Fusion, uh, the man who was a huge part of spearheading South Florida cuisine, someone who has won several... Awards, I honestly, I, I wouldn't even do a disservice in trying to name them all. Um, author of five books. Six. Six books. I own them all. I should know that there's six. Um, just, yeah,
1: thanks for being here. He has zero Kubayashi Cups, though.
2: <laughs> zero Kubayashi Cups. Chef, you don't know what that is. We did a past little eating competition. Whoever
0: won, won the Kubayashi Cup. It's a big deal. <laughs> I have not attained that. <laughs> Precious goal as of yet, but (laughs) doesn't mean I'm going to give up. Make some room (laughs) on the mental. (laughs) I promise. I promise. (laughs) Listen, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Michael. I mean, since the day that you entered my kitchen, how many years ago was that? I uh, don't know. but um, Longer
2: longer than I'd like to admit.
0: I was thinking about it as we were coming over here today in the car and just thinking back what it must have been like for you and what it was like for me to... um, to be in that endeavor and um, to see the purpose, you know, the purposefulness of your intention, you know, the the gung ho spirit that you've had, I could I could see that you were a you know a college jock who was just transferring Me. his energy from the field into the kitchen, and um and, and I'm so glad that you know you have done it, and I'm really thrilled that you've found this uh this post here in Coconut Grove to um, begin to show the world what you're capable of, because it's really very special here. Thank you, Chef. I wanna, before we start diving into
2: like the world of Norman Van Aken and, and all of our wonderful discourse, I have a couple of stories that I like to share with people. And just talking about when uh, we first met. So when we first met, uh, I worked, I Norman's 180 did not exist. It was an empty shell and I knew it was gonna open. I was working. Uh, at the Redfish Grill, actually, and um, I, my chef at the time, Ramel Meza, which is a dear friend that actually lives in New Orleans now, I'm wearing the Camellia Grill shirt, Um, big Charlie Trotter fan, huge Charlie Trotter fan, Um, he lived in New York, and he just, he was a huge part of my journey as well, and we were looking through one of Charlie's books, and there's a big picture of you, right, which I actually just was skimming through the book. It's the seafood book. Yeah. And you're holding up a gigantic tuna. And um, Romel looks at me and goes, yeah, you know who that is? I'm like, I'm not sure who that is. And he's, it's Norman Van Aken. Oh, yeah? And he's like, I think you would like his food. And this was like a long time ago. And I was like, man, you know what? Fuck, I might like his food. So I, I went online. I got a book. And I got New World Kitchen. And uh, man, did that book really change my life. It absolutely, it was the one thing, I just, I couldn't put that book down. I still, it's, I have three copies. It's in every office I have, every home, you know, it's everywhere. So, there was that. Norman's 180 was a shell, and I was like, I really want to work for this person. And uh, I had learned a little bit about Phil, too. And I was a big fan of Phil, as well. Phil Bryant, one of the greatest chefs South Florida's also ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um. And I was like, you know, so I went into the show and I just kept on dropping off resumes to like no one. And I didn't know if they ever reached you. I mean, (laughs) so I just, I must've dropped off my resume over 10 times, 10, 15 times. Just so happens somebody got one. And Phil calls me. I had actually left Redfish and I was working in a hotel uh, for Frank Giannetti at the time. And yeah, this is a long time ago. And um, so you guys called me and I was like, I'm going to go interview. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to go interview. And then they were like, I'm going to interview with you. And I'm like, fuck me. What do you mean I'm going to go interview with Norman Van Aken? So I walk in this room and it was the office. I was on the second floor. Yep. And uh, I was so like, I'm I'm usually pretty cool under pressure, but I was cracking hard. And uh, you asked me <laughs> the, just the very simple questions. So what do you think about food? And I'm just like, you know, I fucking love food. And I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> and then the guy the guy in the other room, which was one of the sous chefs at Norman's at the time, laughs because it was such a, like, simple answer. But now that I look back on that moment, it's still the same. Like, I was very true in that moment, and I think that um, you saw that. And for the rest of the interview, I was pretty much in shambles. Um, but I guess you liked me because you hired me. And, you know, that was, like, the beginning of a very incredible journey that had a lot of ups and downs um and that was the first time I had ever met you
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: so I'd like to fast forward to I think what was maybe three years after that maybe four I don't know I was at Norman's 180 um and then from Norman's I left you know we all at things happened and uh we all left there and I had gone to the local Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this time. And we had still been in somewhat communication. We would email back and forth, whatever. And I was, um, that was probably one of the top three lowest points of my life. Top three lowest? Yeah, lowest, lowest. And and it had nothing to do with the local. Um, It was a nice place. Bottom three, three, though. Bottom three points of my life. And um, it was a very trying time for me. And you had reached out to me. And you were like, you know, we're going to open to you. Uh, Would you like to be a part of the opening team? And me, like a little arrogant fuck, I was like, no, I'm good. Because I was so in my own worlds and so just like inundated by like drugs and alcohol and like stuff. Just like all the stuff that's like bad about our industry. Right. So anyways, uh, fast forward, I think like six or seven months after that email, um, my time at the local ended very poorly uh i was let go for reasons that we can't share publicly um but anyways i was like on the street for like you know i was living somewhere but in a very bad place so i reached out to you and uh you know i i asked if you were willing to meet and two, you had already opened at the time matt hawkins which is the chef de cuisine at ariette now and Gio Fesser, which is the pastelito papi and one of my best friends in the whole world worked at Tuyo at the time. Uh, and uh, I was like, yeah. And you said yes, which I was shocked that you said yes. So this was like maybe three days after uh, everything happened at, at the local. And, you know, my world was burning and falling apart. And I was in like a really, it was like a two-day bender. Things were bad. Um, and I walked into what was your office in the back. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey was there, uh, but he did not stay. And you just looked at me and you said, are you okay? And I responded, no, I'm not. And we talked a little bit and you said to me, I don't necessarily have a position for you, but I will hire you. And that changed the rest of my life forever. 150%. You did not need to hire me. You did not need to... You know, help me at that point, and you did, so all I could say is thank you for that.
0: I can see you sitting in the chair It was by that table that was supposed to be a big prep table, but it ended up being a kind of an ad hoc right uh office for us because there was no other office, and you were had this coat on and like you, like you've been driving for twenty four hours. It's close to it yeah and you were beat up, and um the world had giving you a serious whipping sure yeah and but i remembered your work and i remember the promise that i saw within you and so um i wanted you know i wanted success like i've always wanted success and the only way you get success is to build a team i'm you know i, I am a member of a team i happen to be typically i'm often the quarterback of the team uh but i would get nowhere if it weren't for Alignment. One went for everybody else, you know? Right. Went for the fans. So I knew we you need, were... We need the fans. We need the fans. We need the fans. They, they, they pay for everything. Yes. But you, you know, you had and have, you know, that intrinsic quality, that ineffable quality of caring so deeply. Yeah, your answer was true, Michael. You love fucking food. You didn't need to say it any fancier than that, really. I could see see it in your... You know, like a method actor looks for truth. You were telling me the truth with your heart. And I appreciate that. You know, when you say you applied for the job ten times, somebody else applied for a job ten times with me. Charlie Trotter. He was front of the house, busboy, in a restaurant that I, for reasons I don't even understand, won the job as the head chef in 1982. And he came in to the kitchen and said, you know, I know I'm a busboy, but I want to work in the kitchen. And I basically said, we don't have anything. We don't, you know, he hadn't worked with me. I didn't know anything about him. He was very thin, very pale. Right. Couldn't really look me in the eye at the time. And uh, my chef, my sous chef, wonderful, amazingly talented, Carrie Nahabedian from Chicago, said, hey, let's start him in gamage. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye on him. I said, okay, he's your project. You keep an eye on them. And a year later, we were communicating like you and I have been able to communicate, which is like about anything, music, yeah. books, cup of coffee, the industry, what it means, how does it mean to grow up with uh, the bad shit that's part and parcel of the, the industry as well. Right. Um, and, and of course, I think the commonality of um, our language so much had to do with the uh, shared love of Latin flavors, Cuban, Caribbean, Miami, all of that, you know, and you had, uh, had it in your DNA, you grew up with it. You had, you had the vernacular for it that, um, and you had, very key, you had the appreciation for it. It astonishes me, Mike, how people can live in this town or in this region of Florida And cook food as if they're cooking in New York, Chicago, California, Kansas, East Jesus, Ireland. I don't know, but they don't seem to grasp that this is the most spectacular place to be a cook. And I say a cook, I mean the working part of what we do.
2: Absolutely. I mean, we. it always goes back, and I, and I, I say it like a million times, is who says the Miami story? you know, who's talking about, and, you know, people have labeled Ariadne and the food that I enjoy doing as like Cuban or Cuban American. I don't, I don't totally believe that. I love cooking Cuban food and I love my culture, but it's more very indicative on Miami as a city, you know, and and I had, um, I had this conversation with someone just recently. It's like, who's telling that story? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot of people that, that are taking that on in different forms and someone I talk about often is Neven because, you know, Neven grows stuff in his backyard and then he puts it on the menu. You know I mean? That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, you know, the way I like to, it's almost when I relate it to Cuban food, if you will, is like being a Cuban American kid at 34 years old, it's the food that I grew up eating. You know, and I grew up eating very differently than my parents did, but still with an appreciation of the same foundationary things like something simple like mame or starfruit or mangoes, you know, or nispero or things of that nature, like that foundationary aspect that makes Miami special, our climate mm-hmm. is really, I think, a very huge foundationary part of my food. And I learned a lot of that working with, with you in the past. And people, you know, they always ask me, like, you know, how was it working with Norman? I was like, It was incredible. I mean, I call you my culinary godfather for a reason. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you're an encyclopedia of food. You know, I would go and ask you a question and you would have not only an answer, but you would have written a paper about it 20 years ago that you could print <laughs> out and give to me. I mean, you don't get that very often in life. So, you know, it's an appreciation for these flavors uh, that is so, I think, rare because people are just like, oh, it's just a mango. You just
0: put it in a shake. No, that's not how this works, you know. And, um, but they'll be rhapsodic about ramps. Right. You know, great. love, and I ramps. love ramps. There's yeah, nothing I like wrong it. with ramps. But right. uh, as far as I know, they don't grow here. Right. And so how do you not know what Monstera Deliciosa is? You know, how do you know what Nispero is? Or by its other name, Sapodilla. Right. I mean, I've been lucky, Michael. I've been extreme. I, it was a stroke of amazing luck. I was at a party in uh, Champaign-Urbana, college town, in uh, 1971. I was totally burned out on America as it existed by then. Watergate, Vietnam. I had just crashed a terrible romantic relationship. And I went down to see some buddies who were hard-partying folks. Did a little import business on the side. And uh, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And I remember Derek and the Dominoes were blasting away in the stereo and we were blasting away, and uh, I said, hey, whoa, wait a minute. Where's your brother? Where's your brother, Steve? And uh, there were three brothers. I grew up across a creek from them, and they were just amazingly funny guys. So many stories, so many wonderful memories. But uh, they said, oh, Steve went down to Key West, you know, do a little dealing. I said, where's Key West? And they said, you know, you go to Miami and keep on going south. And I'm like.
2: So you can't go anymore.
0: Anybody want to go? And uh, these two brothers were at the party. They said, yeah, we'll go. I said, all right, when do you want to go? They said, let's go now. They had a van outside, panel van, Ford Econoline. We got a bag of White Cross, and we jumped in the van. In 36 hours, we pulled into Key West. Knocked on Steve's door, woke him up. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. It was 36-hour travel. I'll never forget going down US-1 across the 7-mile bridge, Greyhound bus coming the other direction, sparks hitting our van as we were so close because at that point in time, it was the old bridge and it was so narrow. Right. He pulled into town and um, everything was different. The town smelled different than any place I'd been. The ancient architecture of the Bahamian wooden houses were different. The little lanes. Stayed there a month. Didn't work. Just partied. Stayed stayed hung out but i was so influenced by this the power of this island that i made it my business to figure out how to get back to it two years later i stored up enough money 300 bucks got into a drive-away car which i can't describe in a short period of time but it was a free way to us free method for us to get from chicago to key west landed in key west got a job Shortly thereafter, in an all-night barbecue place called The Midget. There were no walls on the outside. It was kind of sitting outside like the way we we are right now. Uh, Corrugated tin roof. um, Charcoal grill. I worked the 11 uh, p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. A guitar player named Jimmy Buffett was playing guitar once in a while there while he was trying to figure out what he was doing. He figured it out. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knew him back then. Um, But it was my second job as a cook. But... The point being is that it was an amazingly lucky thing that so early on I got the voice and the flavors, the words, the story of Key West in my head before I was 23 years old. I realized something about it was like a love affair. Yeah. And so I realized that I wanted to represent that early on it took me a little while to get there i still had some more education to go through cuz i was not educated formally i had never been to cooking school but i um i had always been a reader so i switched from novels to cookbooks and i started to read some of the great books and uh and i became educated in the french especially methods of cooking you know some heroes like verger and bocuse and Gerard and others, they they were my early early influences. And then, uh, as fate would have it, my wife Janet had a baby boy. She got homesick. We returned to Illinois. I got a job in a place up there where I met this owner that was really aware, educated man about the entirety of the American restaurant situation. And he, through his just everyday way turned me on to the realization that there's a much, there's a, there's a lot going on in America with food. Mm. And at that time, it was just at that time that American regional cuisine was really taking off. We were moving away from our slavish following of the European model. The Eurocentric model was admirable, but we were Americans. And so people in Texas and uh, Santa Fe and uh, were doing a certain kind of food, you know, the young progenitors of the southwestern cuisine food movement. There was Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck doing this, ca- and, and Jeremiah Tower doing Jeremiah the California Tower. food movement. We didn't have internet back then. I need to remind some of the young listeners of that. But we, we had uh, magazines that were starting to cover the story, and I and I felt a mixture of jealousy and desire. I wanted, I wanted to be in the magazines, and. Somehow I knew at some level that I needed to tell the story. I needed to represent South Florida, Key West. And then when we came to Miami in 92, I began to uh, branch out and learn more about what it meant to be here. My heroes, many of them have been writers. I think that there is a, a universal truth of a William Faulkner novel is made capable by his complete laser-down drill into the county that he wrote about and placed his characters from. I think we can be extremely diverse and expressive by staying more within the zone of what it means to cook in South Florida than trying to cook like they are cooking in Oslo or some other place. They need to cook like they cook in Oslo. I want people to maintain where they cook, from where they cook. And and I'm happy, as can be, to go to a true, whatever, Italian restaurant, French restaurant here in Miami, if there are some. Well, well, there are some. But I I also admire when I see young people, because compared to me, you are young, grappling with how to be a voice for this culture, and a voice that is not just doing abuela's food, nothing wrong with it. Abuela did it marvelously, but but you are not of their generation. What has happened in your life that also has power to it that makes you want to be adaptive in ways that you go, you know what? I am a Cuban-American person, but I fucking love this Thai thing. Mm. So you have, you've, you, you know, you're going to write your own chapter. You are writing your own chapter. For me, my chapters have been about being a Midwesterner who came to Florida and became known as a person who was articulating Florida in a particular way. Fusion Mm -hmm. being one of the more argued about terms I've ever created. Oh oh no, the most argued about term I've ever created, but it's okay. That's all right. Rock and roll didn't have it. You know, everybody didn't love the term rock and roll and everybody didn't love the beat, the term beat generation, but it's okay. If it, is arguable, it means it's powerful. Mm-hmm. I think, um, just to rewind a little bit, and you were talking about
2: uh, Charlie Trotter hmm. applying... His birthday to, was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. So, I mean, for the people that don't know who Charlie Trotter is, you should probably uh, use the internet thing and Google the, the man because he's a legend. And, you know, that's from a, a time... I think that food was so, like, ahead of its time you know, when Trotters was around and uh, the impact that that had on Chicago as a dining scene, um, very similar to, like, the impact that you had down here. And um, I just, it, it it always surprises me when you mention someone's name, like a Charlie Trotter or a Jeremiah Tower or mm-hmm. um, Dean Fearing or, um, you know, some of these, Some of these guys that have been so important, Alice Waters, uh, I mean, they've been so important to the development of like American food, Mm -hmm. not only just uh, dining, because Charlie Trotter was big in just overall dining, you know, Mm -hmm. like the experience that he curated at Trotter's was one of a kind, Um, but you know, that that people just don't know enough about it, you know, because everything in today's world is so indicative on like, what is now. Yeah. 'cause the 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 world of social media and the world of the internet has just really made people gravitate towards like what's on my feed today it's sad it's because sad. they're depriving themselves of the richer meal, but not even just the it's the knowledge like you know i have a I have a ton of cookbooks like it's It's an ungodly amount of cookbooks, I know, because I hear about it all the time that I have cookbooks all over the house and I don't care because it's just like I love them all. But there's a huge portion of my cookbooks that are all very old, you know? And I feel like that food was so pivotal, like that understanding that technique. And, you know, and I'm sure that you can agree that a lot of younger cooks, myself included when I was younger, wanted to skip the base technique part to learn how to like, what's, how to do this in a sous vide machine? Like, why don't we just learn how to cook things over fire? You had a great quote in uh, culinary artistry. Cooking over fire is one of those things that connects us to our primordial past,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And
2: I've, that's one of those things that, those that's one of those quotes that's always stuck with me forever. And it, I think it's now like why I'm so big on, you know, Ariette has wood in the kitchen. We use a lot of smoking and then, elements. Yeah. Lenya obviously charcoal and wood, and, you know, uh, Nave has a wood oven. All those things are, like, very important to me because food, in essence, to me, a lot of people are trying to rewrite chapters of food now and in today's world, like Rene Redzepi and Dan Barber, which they're incredible, you know. But before you can do that, you have to understand how to cook for real which is using a saute pan or using a wood grill or using a smoker. And, you know, you told me something too when uh, I worked for you. And, I, you know, I I always used to bitch. I was like, you know, people just always call me the fucking grill guy, right? I'm always just the grill guy because I always just work grill. And you were like, what's so bad about that? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. And it stuck with me forever. I was like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's totally fine with me. You know, but it's it's again, it's talking about that, like the old school food mentality and the the, you know, really learning from kind of the the group of chefs that are the reason that we're here. You know, the Trotters, Kellers, obviously the Norman Van Aikens, the Dean Fearing's. I just I find so much uh, that there's so much purpose behind that food. Like, everything on that food had a purpose, whether it was an emotional attachment or just a functionality perspective on the plate, which a lot of people lose in today's world, you know? Food is sometimes just because it looks cute instead mm-hmm. of it being, having, like, substance. You know, the three-component and go thing is kind of been lost over time, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Charlie and I talked a lot about how that... Um, he was very, very upset, pissed, that, and he said, you know, I'll tell you what, man, 80%, 90% of the chefs who work in my own kitchen do not know who Freddie Girardet is. Now, I'm sure that we could take that number higher and if we mentioned it to the chefs of South Florida. Oh, gosh. The, you so know, maybe. in the olden days, whatever the art form was, whether it was music, whether it was baseball, I mean, everybody knew who Babe Ruth was, everybody knows who dizzy gillespie was people know but in this world of this instant feeding this media feed everything seems to be washed out over a 24-hour cycle and i'm not going to go on a entire bitch about this because i don't i don't want to talk about that so much i just want to say you know what it's so much more than that there's so much more craft and so much more power that's available to us people should be able to eat your food as if they were blindfolded and find it amazing. Yeah. They should not be. It does not need to be Instagrammable for it to be amazing. It needs to be amazing without it being Instagrammable. Oh man, that's
2: amazing because it's so true. Before I worked for you, when I was working at Redfish Grill, you were on a panel at Star Chefs, and the subject was art versus craft.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. And
2: uh, that's another one of those um, things that I read that forever stayed with me because you know in like everyday conversation and I'm sure you hear this all the times you know chefs we're we're uh, it's cool to be a chef now you know it's like a totally cool different thing. like it's like it's like oh you're a chef that's cool you're such an artist no I'm not an artist I'm a craftsman and I will always believe that I think people who really care about food and really care about creating and curating that experience for the guests believes in the craft aspect of it, because it's not just putting one plate out. It's about putting the whole experience together. And that in and of itself is a craft. And it's so difficult to do every aspect of it, you know, and you're hugely known for, uh, service, like being very in the service, you know, like just, so if you could talk a little bit about that, like how, how you've kind of seen maybe the dining world change, have you seen it change? Do you feel like people have taken away from the experience of curating, like curating the experience, and it's more about just like come in and eat and go, or
0: have you seen that at all? I've always felt like there's at least two mighty rivers, and one of them is fast food, fast casual, and one is dining, fine dining. They're very different from each other, and they coexist. We walked in here tonight and I and I know that sometimes people recognize me and maybe I get a different experience than some, but your team very very naturally welcomed me and I don't think some of them knew who I was. I mean I'm not dressed like a chef or, uh, and and I, I just really appreciate that. I think that um, and another place where Charlie and I talked about this endlessly was his service and he wrote. A book on it, as a matter of I fact. I read it. Yeah, lessons in service, lessons in excellence. Yeah, yeah, the it's two, two, right? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I think it's whether it's forty nine fifty one, fifty one forty nine. People may not understand that you've used, you know, chervil to garnish this aguachile, or you've you've used poblanos versus jalapenos. They may not get it. They don't need to get it. They they need to hopefully like the flavors in their mouth but they don't need to mentally process what herb it was, what chili it was, what fruit it was. But people universally process genuine care. The that 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 incredibly personal meaningful way that you embrace people without being, you know, silly about it. But what is, you know, how is everything, you know, Even if it's said without words, it's just that care. Service is key. I grew up the mother of a waitress who became a manager as she grew older. I had no plan on being a chef when I was in grade school. Nobody in my my grade school, my high school did. Uh, My mom, though, would come home from work and count the tips on the kitchen table. My grandmother would be making dinner. My mother and father split up by that time. My older sister, Jane, worked with my mother. They would split up the quarters, the dimes, the nickels, and roll them in the paper packages, to put into the bank, and they would talk about what service was that day. And I'd be doing my geography assignment you know, uh, in, the, in the living room, which was you know as far away as this tree right here. And I'd be unconsciously, I'm sure, in many ways, hearing them, but also somewhere it was making itself, in my brain, have a presence. And I could see how much it meant to my mom and my sister, who, who meant the world to me, that people were happy, simply happy. Nothing is more gratifying to me than not just making the plate, putting the food on the plate, which I adore, but seeing the server or the bus person taking the place away from the table empty and the people looking up at me saying, that was amazing. Yeah. And you could tell. They're genuinely affected by it. And if we've gotten to that place, then I feel like I've done my job. I want to touch back on something. You mentioned a book a little while ago called Culinary Artistry. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, uh, c- Karen and um, Andrew, how do you say your last name? Page and Dornenberg. Karen Page, Andrew Dornenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, the conversation comes up oftentimes when we're having a think about is cooking an art, is cooking a craft? Right. Well, I think it's both. I think that. There are times when you're cooking where you enter a state of grace. It's momentary, it's elusive, it's not going to last. I think when you're cooking 99, 97, 96, depending on how good you are, how connected you are, that is craft, if you're doing it right. But if you have this moment where you have this transcendent thing that happens then you do enter a state of grace where it does enter the world of art but just don't expect it to last oh yeah Picasso was an artist of course so many other artists too many to even bring up but there were many things that he made and did that he would have thrown away but for the for for much of his life he was able to attain a state of grace with his art that was phenomenal that's why you say Picasso everybody knows what that means I feel there's moments that we we can get to in cooking where there are moments of grace that reach the level of art. Just know that it's going to be gone before long. I sometimes feel that we're sculptors who sculpt in rain. Oh, yeah. 100%. For a moments, you know, you can create this bubble of beauty, but because it's food, dies rapidly
2: well it's a very interesting subject because i have this conversation with my chefs often which is it's a beautiful dish can we do it as beautifully 40 times on a friday night
0: right right with only
2: one guy working the station
0: yes (laughs) yeah that's like because we're a
2: business too yeah well it's a very um It's a fine line, right? It's a very interesting place to be because I'm I'm fortunate enough to be in a position now that um, you know we have, we are doing like some smaller dinners with people that we're keeping it super intimate, and you know we're we're cooking pretty much whatever we want, and we're we're keeping it, we're we're doing art, we're doing our our version of art. And, and it's something that for me is very special um, because, you know, Ariet, uh, there's nights that there. I mean, it's cranking and it's real hard. It's a small kitchen and you got to, you have to be very smart about how you put the menu together and such. But when you're in that moment that you're up at two o'clock in the morning and you're writing down ideas on dream sheets, which I still use, um, and you're putting down 30 or 40 ideas and then you're writing down components of all those dishes and then you, you know, reflect back on it on the next day and you're like, well, this is like 10 components too deep. I need to cut it here, there, and the next. It's when the artist, the business person, and the craft really start to.
0: Cause you wear, we wear a number of hats. Yeah. And 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 we, and we have teams that have to be molded and nurtured and understand which hat to wear and when.
2: Yeah. Well, it's also an interesting place to be. When uh, I, I remember uh, vividly the New York strip dish that we had on, on the menu at Tuyo. And I don't know if it was anyone else other than me and Geo Fester working that station, they would have been able to pick that dish up.
1: <laughs>
2: you know, the same thing with like uh, the, the pork Havana, that version that was on that menu. If it was anyone else other than the two of us and, you know, a handful of other people that I know working that station, it would have been really hard for them. You know, and, and it's, you also, and I, I've just learned this very, in a very stubborn fashion over the last three years, you have to cater your menu to your team, albeit very reluctantly inside of your own brain, inside of your own being, and inside of your own personality. You need to cater a menu to be like, well, this person works this station. Can they do this on a Friday night? And I mean it's a tough place to be because I know if I was working the station on a Friday night, I could do it mm-hmm. and you could be very difficult and be like, Oh, I'm just going to, they're going to fucking do it. And yeah, that's a nice place to be, but it's not realistic. And I've learned that the very hard way, you know, and I'm super fortunate too, that we have some really incredible young talent in our kitchen. Um, but still, it's not like putting Matt on the station and he can bang it out without a problem or me, you know, or the countless other great chefs that we have working here, we're not that fortunate to have them Garmo on a Friday, you know? So I don't know that that conversation of art and craft and business altogether, I think is the new topic is where the industry is going now, because unless we're opening restaurants that have 35 seats and it's only a tasting menu and you're only inviting the guests that you want to invite, which there are some people lucky enough to be doing that. Um, we're subject to the business and it, and it's and that's why I think the conversation of art and crafts is so difficult too because we want to be the artist we are the craftsman but we're forced to be the businessman
0: I have paid many bills with yeah. yucca shrimp yeah for sure yeah <laughs> with, and with and, a yellow tail and conch chowder and conch chowder, <laughs> and conch chowder. Hey, that's
2: a good topic um you know i I bust Matt's chops all the time because I worked grill and Matt worked saute and the dishes that were on the saute station were the the, the ones. They were the bangers. They were the ones that Norman Van Aken paid rent on these dishes, right? I had like one, which was the the chicken and the veal chop. Matt had like six conch <laughs> chowder, yellowtail, um I had the foie too. But you know foie is a more is is I mean, you put yellow yellowtail on the menu and everyone's going to order it. And Matt's making mashed potatoes to order. He's, you know, the blanc every day. I mean, it was – I still talk to him about it now, you know. Um, I love to get
0: in a conversation with my old, some of the people that were guests or, or worked in the kitchens and ask them their favorite dishes that they picked up or they were part of it in the history of the various Normans restaurants because – the subject matter becomes animated very, very quickly, and oh, it's like it's like a band talking about you know the best songs that they played on the road, yeah. you know, and where they were, depending upon where I was in my career at that time, which songs were on the set list, because as I mean, some things seem to go on the set list, and they were always there, like you know, like a Tom Petty set list, you know, there's certain things that are always going to be on that set list, right? And I want to hear him if I go hear his right. band or. God bless Tom Petty in heaven now. But, um, you know, his death has actually spurred me into making sure I hit the concerts more than I used to. And not just go to work, only go to work. That was life forever. But um, it depends on which iteration of a Norman's restaurant that we had, whether it was Louis' Backyard in Key West or whether it was the original Norman's in Coral Gables or it was Norman's 180. Um, There were various things on on that set list at that time. That people who cooked in those stations, those dishes and those pickups are etched in their brains forever. Forever. And I love to hear them talk about it. Sometimes even like argue and sort of uh slap, smack talk each other about who's got a harder pickup than the other one. But I, I enjoy No that. Matt
2: Matt won that. I, I don't even I wouldn't even fight with him. He definitely um I probably wouldn't tell him this to his face, but he had a much harder time than I did. But you know, that leads me to that conversation of uh, those dishes. I mean, those iconic dishes, those dishes that the the French toast, the foie French toast. I mean, that dish is, I, it's hard to, to talk about your career without talking about that dish, I think. I mean.
0: Charlie did a version in one of his books and Emerald did a version in one of his books. Yeah. I mean, it,
2: it's, that's-, that's, that's cool. I mean, I'll, you know. And it, it's just, I, I picked up so many of those uh, foie gras dishes, and I, I love it. I mean, it's still
0: one of my favorites. Oh, but you know, you know why they're memorable, I think, Michael? And I think you do know why, but let's just talk about that for a moment. They, they encapsulate a story, yeah. they tell a story. And I think that's what is missing so oftentimes when I go, when Janet and I go to a restaurant, or you and I go to a restaurant, you can be fed. You can have a very good meal, a pleasant meal, a well-crafted, structurally correct meal, but are you going to remember it a week later? hundred percent. I, I had a woman come in, and she was a French woman, famous writer in her time, Colette Rossant was her name, and she was feared and, and admired equally in, 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 in this particular period of time. And uh, one of the South Florida food historical people, Carol Kotkin... Uh, brought her to Amano when I first came out of Key West and said, I have Colette Rossant with me. She can't be here for dinner. Will you make her two dishes? And I said, Absolutely, you know, absolutely bring her by. It was like three o'clock, you know, you know how hard it is to pick up a dish at three o'clock. Oh, I'm very aware. <laughs> I'm so aware. <laughs> you're not set up at 3 o'clock to make those dishes yet. You, everything right. is timed to be ready at opening. And then sadly, you
2: get mad at your whole team. Why don't you have this? And in your head, you're like, fuck, I know why they don't have it. But come on, but help me out here. I made, I
0: made her a dish. I thought it was a damn good dish. And she was an elderly lady and very, very uh, put together, very, very astute lady. And uh, she said it was very nice. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh. That is not going to cut it. <laughs> and Carol's like nervous because she's taken her, you know, to the only, she could only take her to like one or two places in, because of her time frame the, of Miss Rossant's. And I said, give, give me a moment. Can I, can I put one more dish up for you? And she said, yes, you, you can. I could see it's important to you, young man. I was a young man myself, Don. And, um, and so I did the Don Island French Toast. I swear to God, Michael, it's like a tear was in her eye. She said, now you've done it. You've made a dish I will never forget. Yeah. This is from a French person. I'm doing foie gras. So I was very, very jazzed to, um, to have her compliment that dish in that way. And that's exactly what my, what I strive to do, is I want people not to be fed, not to be comfortable. I want them to be, but I want them to have memories, memories and and to feel like I want to go to that restaurant as many times as I can in my life because they treated me with respect and dignity and they cherished my time. Mm. That that conversation,
2: food expression, food story. I'm. I believe so much in that, and so uh, we're very lucky to have hired Devin Braddock as our corporate pastry chef, and um, she's infinitely talented super hardworking. She's very like cerebral. Like, I mean, she'll go through the dish like 35 times and just like, take it easy, pump your brakes. So we're talking about like her first actual menu rollout. And uh, we tasted some dishes and, you know, like for the most part, they were like, they were incredible. And and I loved them. Um, And then a couple dishes, I think that they were like forced because she's trying, she was trying to be like the restaurant, not like herself. And I asked her, I said, you know, what is something that you really want to do? What is something that, like, if there was a dish that was, like, me having a conversation with you, what would it be? And her response to me was, my grandmother's bread pudding. And me, I have been forever very adamant about never putting bread pudding on the menu. (laughs) Ever. So I was like, you know, and I thought, and then I, I jostled with it, and then we ended the day, and... I had too much sugar that day anyways, and I was just like, all right, I'm done. here." (coughs) But that night, I was actually smoking a cigar, and I was thinking about it. You know, like, I I want people to end their meal here having a conversation with Devin because it's always a great conversation. So how can they best do that? And I was like, you know, if this bread pudding means so much to her, I want to know more about it. So then it was like a huge curveball to her. Because then I responded. I came back the next day. I was like, all right, let's do your bread pudding. And then she was like, no, what do you mean? How are we going to do that? What do you mean? You said no. And I was like, okay. So now I know there's a whole other thing. Now it's like putting that expression out there in that conversation with her is not only is it important, but it's huge. And to me, that is the biggest thing about someone who really loves food. When they have to second, I mean, Fuck, the first year of this menu in this restaurant was so difficult for me because I had no idea how to have that conversation with a guest mm-hmm. through food. Mm-hmm. Now it's a little more natural and I feel more comfortable with it. I'm, you know, but some people aren't comfortable with that yet. And, well, and babies don't run. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> that's uh, 100% accurate. And it's, but like you said, that experience, you can go somewhere and you can eat and it's just food. Mm -hmm. but then you can go somewhere and it's like wow like and the food could be very simple you know i I go back to the meal i had at AVEC in
0: chicago Mm -hmm,
2: yeah and um that meal i would say that meal and the meal i had at rustic canyon in la were like very important for me because they were they came from chefs that obviously had tons more experience they were well versed in their food and they were confident they knew who they were they were okay being who they were and they weren't trying to be someone else and that stuck out stuck out to me so much cuz it was like having a conversation with a very confident just and just like well versed person in food you know what i mean mm, of and course. It, it's just like that that thing means so much to me is like and I, I've learned um, here through lots of trials and tribulations that really this restaurant, whether you want to give it a, a label, it as it is, like the style of food, all it really boils down to is you're coming into my house and you're having a conversation with me and we're going to talk. An edible conversation. Right. Nice. And we're going to talk. And you know what? You could not love it. And it's totally fine. Because when people talk to me, they don't always love me and that's fine with me. But that that comfort of being okay with that has been so important to like, not only my just being, but my mental health in this thing that is like daily judgment of our food that I I don't know. It's huge. It's been a huge
0: thing for me. So that's like, um, anyways, that's what I got there. I think it's, (laughs) I I think it's so important that people understand that simple, is articulate as anything, you know. I, uh, I happen to love creme brulee and bread pudding. I like vanilla ice cream for that matter. People oh, are always surprised. Too. You know, people, because I, you know, I have a radio show on WLRN, and for my show, it's called A Word on Food, and it's all built around me experiencing an ingredient, something, and I work that into a four-minute show about four-minute show. It's, it's just me. I write them. I record them with my editor. It's not like this kind of a show. But to do the show, I end up going to the neighborhood restaurants quite a lot because that, to me, is where that language exists. And so I'm forever trying to find places in the 305, or if I'm on the road, on the road, doesn't matter, where I'm going to be exposed to to ingredients or a dish that allows me to educate and inspire And hopefully entertain people about cuisine. And they'll see me in a restaurant that's a hole-in-the-wall restaurant. They're like, you're Norman Van Aken, right? Yeah. What are you doing here? I go, eating real food. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, holy shit. Well, I mean, I was at a gas station that serves Mexican food at Homestead the other day. And a surgeon in a scrubs comes up to me. He goes, chef. I go, hey. He goes, I love that you're here. And I go, well, great. Thanks. I love that you're here. What'd you have? You know, he said, I had the, the menudo. I'm like, great. Did you like it? He goes, oh, I call ahead, make sure they're going to have it on the menu. I, and he goes, but you're here. I go, yeah, <laughs> because it's just tasty. It's, yeah. it's the real deal. So I think, you know, I mean, Bocuse said very well, once Paul Bocuse, legendary chef, if people don't know from France, still considered among the greatest chefs of the 20th and 21st centuries, and you know, he said at one point something to the uh, like this: the food will be so much better when chefs present the food they themselves like to eat. Yeah, yeah. Not some tricked-out dish that's interesting. Oh, that's a word that just sends off an alarm in me. Interesting. You know, that's like an interesting date. You know, it's just like you never know how it's going to go. Yeah, it's. I want something that is going to be how fucking delicious was that? You yeah, know, yeah, that's what I'm going for. And sometimes how delicious was that was something that your grandmother did make, could make. I love a good chicken noodle soup. Believe
2: yeah, me. Me too.
0: The um, truth to the food is not found in complexity. I oftentimes will metaphorically speak about music. You you know that. Yeah. You know, when, when, when uh, Clapton was considered, Clapton is God, the guitar God that he was, he was playing in bands like Cream and Blind Faith and he was playing it, warp speed all the notes in the world i was at i was in a frame of mind like that when i was younger and like a person like clapton i found that i could express myself also doing it in a lot less notes and so i did i'm not so known for that people typically more often, think of the complex dishes that I've done, especially those of you who have prepped my dishes. Doug, bang bang, go on. <laughs> Duck, bang, bang. <laughs> yeah, the recipe three, starts off three pages long. Uh, Anyways, day one. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's yeah. how the recipe starts.
2: I, I will, we'll end off the the first part of the show with um, we were at Tuyo. That's such a great story. I still talk shit about the story all the time. We're at Tuyo, and uh, Jeffrey walks into the kitchen and was like, uh, I don't remember what we were doing. I don't remember. It was for something. But he had in his hand the recipe for Duck Bang Bang, and he walks in, and there was only two guys in that whole kitchen that had not worked for you previously. And he's like, uh, raises his hand. He goes, I have the Duck Bang Bang recipe. Who wants to volunteer to do it? Me, Matt, and Gio run to the back of the kitchen. (laughs) Like, we got to get something in the oven. And then (laughs) the first guy, Mike, the Garmo guy, is like, I'll do it. I'll do it. And we're like. Yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. yeah, you absolutely will, sir. <laughs> Midway through, he's like, How come nobody told me about this? Sir? like, I don't know what you're talking about. We I'd never done it before. Yeah, that was that was a good time. So
1: cool. So that's the first part of the show. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> this has been Pancom Podcast, part one of our conversation with Chef Norman Van Aken. We're here with Mike Beltran, obviously Norman Van Aken, Carlos Carluba. <laughs> Rodriguez, and Nick, Nicholas Jimenez. There you go. We have been off here silent in the background. Uh, we will wrap this up with our usual shameless plugging things before we come back and pretend that we're going to we, shameless
2: uh, plug. Man, that means we're going to plug
1: twice today. We're, we're going to plug. Shameless pl- plugs. We're, you know what we'll do? Well, actually, I will copy and paste I like this that. shameless I like that. plugging. I like that. I like that. The second episode's... Shameless plugging will sound super bootleg. Boom. Uh, So you can find Pankong Podcast on all the social media things at Pankong Podcast, like a podcast sandwich. (laughs) Uh, I love it every time. You can uh, find past episodes at com slash Pankong Podcast. You will find links to all of our things, past episodes, also a link to contribute on Patreon. If you're into what we're doing, you can... For as little as a buck a month, be a uh, supporter of Dying. this thing and get some exclusive perks. I think we're going to be making stickers. We'll probably be doing some t shirt giveaway stuff. We are. It's going to be crazy. Who's paying for that? Uh, anyway. is paying for all that. <laughs> Just like we pay for the Kubayashi Cup. It's true. It's <laughs> um, true. It's sad, but it's true. It's not sad. I was, it, I went way out of my way to make sure the Kubayashi Cup yeah, happened. You I was didn't very see this about trophy. This. It was like it was
2: three feet tall. Oh, man. It was incredible. It was absurd.
1: So um, you can find Ariette at Ariette yeah. Miami. At Ariette Miami, right? Ariette Miami, at Chug's
2: Diner, at Nave Miami. That's supposed to open soon. Uh, at Lenya, um, what is it, Lania? I think it's, I don't remember. Yeah. Time and out you're, Lania, you're Time pig on. Inc. I am P-I-G-I-N-C, that yeah. is correct.
1: P-I-G to the I-N-C, if you're extra cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was Maybe cool. not. Nah, okay. forget it. And then, uh, Norman, do you, do you have anything you want to plug here? Maybe in a slightly more articulate way than we just did our stuff. <laughs> or not. You can be totally inarticulate. That's fine.
0: I'd love them to listen to A Word on Food at WLRN sure. and listen to the show.
1: So uh, is that something... Saturday
0: I- mornings at around 8.30 is when it airs live. Um, live in the sense that it's been recorded, but it sure. comes out at around 8.30, 8.32 a.m. depending upon the day. And um, But it's always available online at the WLRN website. Just either Google me or A Word on Food and it's going to come up. And I've done... Three hundred and fifty shows, so there's a lot of material there. So
1: get cracking, get get to listening. You'll, you'll be you'll be quizzed on the next episode of Bunko Podcast. Jeez. All right, so All right. with that, we are gonna wrap uh, wrap this one. Bye. It's <laughs> been great. Yeah, thanks. Bye.
0: Shooting, the next down, the good and shooting. Now, good and shooting, the next down, the good and shooting.